Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Meeta Singh with me, providing truly a masterclass on sleep. Dr. Singh is a sleep doctor whose work and research focuses on coaching the sleep muscle to help maximise performance in both individual athletes and sports teams. She is the service chief of sleep medicine, section head and medical director at the Henry Ford Sleep Laboratory. And she has also served as a consultant for multiple NFL, MLB, NHL and NBA teams. So without further ado, it is my great privilege to bring you the conversation between myself and Dr. Meeta Singh. Dr. Meeta Singh, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Just to begin with, uh, in, ca- in case some of the listeners haven't heard of you, could you just kind of outline what you do and, and just give us a bit of an outline of what your background is? Okay, so I am a sleep medicine specialist. And so for my background, um, after my medical school, I did a, a residency in psychiatry. So I trained in psychiatry at Mayo Clinic. And then I did a sleep medicine fellowship at the Henry Ford Health System. And I've been in clinical practice at the Henry Ford Health uh, uh, Sleep Disorder Center. Uh, you know, we, we treat sleep disorders in people of all ages. And I also do some research. So I'm, I'm affiliated with the Henry Ford Sleep Research Center. And the focus of research is normal and abnormal sleep, excessive daytime sleepiness, you know, the effect of insomnia, shift work. Because uh, Detroit is a big, large hub of shift workers because the auto industry, uh, you know, the effect of alcohol and drugs on sleep, etc. And of course, you know, I have a niche practice in which I'm, I work with working and advising pro- professional athletes and athletic teams, um, C-suite executives. I'm actually working with a few entertainers, too. And the goal of that practice is sleep optimization with the goal of optimizing performance. And I, and I also have a niche clinical practice in which I see athletes who may have sleep disorders. And how did you kind of first uh, get into sport? Was it based on kind of a medical reputation first and then you kind of segued into sport from there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, if you had asked me, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, this is what I would be doing today, I would have laughed. In fact, I would have been surprised. Because, you know, I wasn't, uh, I, I really wasn't that interested in sports um, as much. And so how I came upon sports is really is happenstance. So I was doing my normal clinical work and I was also working with a lot of execs at the, at the auto companies, helping them with jet lag and travel management, especially because a lot of them would travel to Asia or they'd have early morning or late night meetings and how to fit sleep into all of that. And, and at that time I started working with the local NFL team. Um, and, and, you know, this was, this is, it's almost six years ago now or seven years. And then, so when I first started working with the local NFL team from there, I sort of taught myself a little bit more about sports. And I realized that there is, there is this, um, you know, mostly un, underappreciated aspect of recovery and sleep in sports, at least in, on the uh, locally 
So then from there, I was I started working with a local major league baseball team. And then, you know, uh, a lot of the people who work in sports, you know, they move around a lot, right? They, they go to different teams. They may move to a different sport. So somebody who was working with the Detroit Lions started working for the, for the NBA. And they asked me to come work with, with a couple of teams in the NBA and, you know, so on, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's, it's been, it, it was happenstance. Um, but um, a very happy, happy happenstance. I think sports are a really interesting one because we're always um, chasing these kind of marginal gains and uh, we're quite often lured in by new technologies and uh, new science and new ways of doing things. But, you know, fundamentally, the big rocks are going to be training, nutrition, and of course, massively sleep. Um, To kind of, I guess, kick off sleep-wise what are the kind of big differences in you know different hours of sleep i think like this might be a good way just to dive straight in how how big a difference does it make if you get six hours seven hours eight hours nine hours ten hours um maybe in a typical adult and and an athlete because i think that will just launch us into the deep end of of sleep well so firstly you know we have to define what sleep requirement is and sleep requirement you know for people in general will vary very slightly from person to person. And most healthy adults, Andrew, we need about seven to nine hours of sleep to function at our best. Now, children, teenagers, um, and younger adults may need more. And as you get older, um, even though people will think, well, you know, as you get older, you need less sleep, most older people still need about seven hours of sleep. So one can definitely, definitely start to see deficits in both mental and physical performance and and mental and physical health if you get less than six hours of sleep. And, you know, your question specifically, of course, was about, you know, six versus seven versus uh, eight hours. And it so, so the sleep, sleep deprivation will affect you. And the deficits happen in a dose-dependent fashion. So what I'm trying to say is that if you get you know, if you, five hours are worse than six hours, and six hours are worse than seven, uh, and seven hours is worse than eight hours, right? When it comes to how you are, you function the next day, and so that's just something to keep in mind. Um, the other thing is that that sleep deficits they tend to accumulate over time. So, you know, there, so there, so there are tests, and in these, we do tests in our sleep lab, and. There, they, uh, we, we basically test psychomotor vigilance, which is, you know, you measure reaction time, you measure accuracy, both of which are quite important for athletes, right? Wouldn't you say? Of course, yeah. And so both, so the deficits in your reaction time and your accuracy is, you know, it's, it's pretty linear in which if you get, the less sleep you get, the worse uh, the deficit is going to be. And the one, the one thing that I always like to tell people is number one is that it's, it's cumulative, which means that, you know, if you, if you get sleep, if you're sleep deprived for seven days versus four, then seven days is going to be worse. Your impairment is going to be worse on the seventh day versus the fourth day. But also that, that your subjective or self-reported sleepiness does not parallel this impairment that you get objectively so do you see what i'm do you follow what i'm saying yeah that must make it quite hard to uh 
detect what's good and bad, I guess, in a simple sense. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Bingo. So that's, you're, you're absolutely right. So what happens is that, that uh, because you get, if you do this on a chronic, uh, in, in, in a chronic manner, then the impairments will, will accumulate, but that self-perception of sleepiness does not parallel that. So you, and which is a bad thing because you don't feel as sleepy. And so you don't take corrective measures. You know, I would say it's, it's like at a bar, somebody who's been drinking is the last person who should be in charge of you know, deciding whether they're capable of driving. You know, it's similar to that. When you, when you become, when your sleep deprivation, it, it accumulates you're not a good person. You're, you don't, you are not the, the correct person to decide whether you're sleepy or not. You know, in sport, systems are everywhere and there's a lot of moving parts so you can see why systems are critical to kind of ensure no stones left unturned. The first chapter of that, I guess, that we can talk about is, and I think people in sport will be interested in, whether they're a PT or a sports scientist or coaches you know, how, how can we best assess sleep or uh, fatigue from sleep in athletes? If we maybe begin with um, the simpler ways of doing it that don't rely as much on technology, how can people best evaluate an athlete's sleep and recovery? So the easiest way to assess how much sleep you're getting really is by simple handwritten sleep diaries. And we've been using sleep diaries, especially in clinical medicine, for a long time. And so, you know, the, the good thing about a sleep diary is that it gives you not just information about how much sleep you're getting, but also includes your perception of how much sleep you're getting. And that is also very important. But, you know, now, of course, there's a glut in the market about all, with all these devices that actually measure sleep. And, you know, they, they may speak, uh, you know, they may say that they, they measure sleep stages, they measure the quality of sleep, but you have to be a little careful because the data doesn't always um, uh, match what the high budget marketing hype is. So if, you, if you're ever collecting, Andrew, if you're ever, ever collecting sleep data, you always want to, first of all, start with a question, uh, you know, wh what, what's the question I'm trying to answer? by collecting any information. So, and that's where I would say, if, you know, if your teams want to collect information, that's where they should always begin. Uh, the, the other thing is that you have to keep in mind that the, most of the wearable devices that are available right now, um, they, they have a, you know, so they typically measure either movement. So they have an accelerometer in it and they measure movement and from movement infer whether you're awake or not, or, um, or they have monitor heart rate and, you know, based on heart rate variability, they try to infer if you're asleep or if you're awake and if you're asleep, what stage of sleep you're on. The problem is that, uh, that it's the software algorithms that decide what to sleep and, and what is awake and it's that's a bit of a black box right now you know these soft these algorithms are they're proprietary they're owned by various companies and obviously you know they don't people don't want to share this and so we really don't know what whether you have if you're wearing something whether you're actually measuring something or not they're kind of um they're kind of indicator devices then more than true uh, measures yes yes so we, we don't really know 
if that information is correct or not. So I'll tell you, for example, what, what I would tell somebody who's, who's wearing this, that, you know, you can use those devices to give you, to show you trends or long-term data. So, you know, if it, if it tells you for a week, you've been sleeping on an average six hours and, you know, on maybe on the weekend, you're getting an extra two hours, that is more likely to be correct. I typically would not give any credence to, you know, waking up in the morning and looking at it and say, oh, I, I didn't get enough deep sleep last night. That, to me, that information is pretty much useless. I can imagine like in a in a sports team setting, if a team can persuade athletes to wear a wearable as a way to measure sleep, that can, that can be sometimes a little bit easier because the athlete, it doesn't require much athlete, it just requires the athlete to accept it. When you know when you're trying to implement sleep diaries, which require more conscious uh, investment mm-hmm. of time and effort from the athletes, how do you do? You have any kind of strategies for how you you maybe overcome some barriers in in selling that idea to the athlete at the benefits, or kind of ways that you coach teams to to try and get buy-in from the athletes in, in adhering to that process? Well, the first thing you know it's important to start with is just plain education. So you have to educate players, team members, every member of the team, why sleep is important, you know, and what, you know, how, what not getting enough sleep, how that affects performance, etc. because you have to get their buy-in. Once you've got their buy-in, then um, if they want to measure, if they want to measure, uh, you know, get their sleep measured, then that's another step. So I, I you know, I want, uh, let, let me back up here and tell you. So typically, I I will rarely go into a team or work with an athlete and say, "Here, here's a device, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to wear it for me." Instead, I would, you know, build a relationship in which I would tell them, you know, why sleep is important. Now, as part of speaking to them and evaluating somebody's sleep. If you want to find out, you know, whether they're a night owl or a morning person, or if you want to find, so there's some information in which you can use questionnaires. You, questionnaires are also good if you're trying to screen out, um, <clears throat> you know, specific sleep issues. What happens typically is that that it's the player or the team themselves who say, well, no, but we want to wear a sleep monitor because we want to find out how much sleep we're getting. And, and because, uh, you know, and w- once, so once they've, they've come to that conclusion and that's what they want to do, then we, then we, then, you know, you want to have this conversation of why it's important to, for them to, and what, what's the information they're trying to get. Um, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. So what happens is that as a, as a, on a on a large scale when you're talking to multiple people wearing a wearing a monitor is easier because it takes the thinking out of it and all they have to do is you know press a button and, and tell the device they're about to fall asleep and then when they're about to wake up but when you're working one on one on athletes i feel that having a sleep diary gives you um, better information because this is this is it true it's truly reflective of 
their perception and how they are perceiving their sleep to be. Um, it, you know, it, it would it would depend on on the circumstance, but but you know, the short answer is always by education. You know, if you can educate them, because sleep is a very personal thing, Andrew. I mean, you know, you can if the team manager mandates everybody is going to wear a, a device and there it's going to be monitored. Somebody could choose to have their girlfriend wear it at night if they wanted to go out. True. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think I think. Uh, you'd be surprised at how often players are able to fill in sleep diaries. You know, I would say 30, and this is, of course, just my, you know, my personal experience, that 33% of the players are really on it. They really want to do this, everything right. 30, 33% are not concerned. You know, they don't want to do anything about it. And then there's that middle 33% who are willing to maybe give it a try or, you know, you might need to do some convincing with them. So. And it's interesting because I think, you know, people always want to plug more data points into their kind of athlete management systems. But by the sounds of it, by placing a wearable into that system, you can be, you can be creating some noise and inaccuracy, which definitely isn't going to help the overall accuracy of multiple variables that you're collecting on medical, physical, um, game time related stuff as well. So it's quite interesting actually that you, know, you can almost use these tools to try and simplify and plug in more data, but actually you might be just sort of dirtying the landscape that you're collecting a little bit. Yes. And so I'll tell you a couple of things now that you're just saying that I want to point out. Number one is you have to be a little careful because some of the player unions, you know, especially in the United States, they the players association will not allow you to do this monitoring because you're doing it you know uh, when they when they're in bed at home it's their private time i know the nfl uh, players association will not allow you to do this unless the player themselves decides to buy in the second thing is that there is a new sleep disorder it's called orthosomnia i don't know if you've heard of it but it's basically developed secondary to people wearing devices and being obsessed with what their device is selling them. And so they actually start, they actually get poor sleep. They actually get anxiety about sleep, performance anxiety about sleep, difficulty initiating, maintaining sleep because they are so stressed out based on the data they're they're, they're getting. So that's another thing you want to be careful about. Um, You know, I would say overall, the the only realistic thing that a device can tell you is maybe the number of hours you've slept and to you know and not to the same degree but maybe to a lesser degree the stages of sleep you're in and i you know you already know how many hours you've slept you don't need a device to tell you that but you know sometimes performance coaches of course and physical uh, therapists they might be using this data to come up with uh, personalized training schedules, et cetera, based on the information that they get. And so, you know, I, I can understand why they want to collect this information. Now, now, if there was a device, and of course devices keep changing and keep evolving. And so if there was a device that was getting information and based on that device, you were, um, you were giving feedback to the player and were able to change or alter behavior, or you were getting this information and 
this information that the device was giving was sort of motivating you and there was a comp friendly competition amongst players and they all wanted to make sure that they got to a certain mark of sleep and you know a certain point um, i say go for it hmm. i think assuming you know the person listening is either a, a therapist sports scientist coach whoever in sport trying to um, facilitate better sleep in athletes or it's a it's an it's an athlete with a, a good attitude towards sleep and professional attitudes how they approach things uh, physically setting a kind of optimal home environment for sleep I think is is probably best understood at the moment um, how when you're dealing with athletes staying in say hotels or or maybe even sleeping on the on during travel how do you kind of advise people to create that optimal sleep environment away from home where they haven't got necessarily the same resources? So the sleep environment, you know, first of all, your bedroom, wherever you're sleeping, whether it's a hotel or at home, should be quiet. It should be dark. Um, it should be cold or cooler. And here I would say within the United States, uh, you know, between 65 to 67 degrees, um, it should, there should be no electronics. And, um, so, so, so that's good. While if it's warm, if it's uncomfortable, if it's, if there's too much light, it's too noisy. If you're playing on your phone or laptop, all of that, or even working for in your bedroom is bad. So, you know, I, the first thing I, I always tell patients, uh, players is that reserve your bedroom for sleep and sexual activity. That's, that's the most important thing. Uh, sometimes I find, Andrew, that that it's actually easier to control the environment when players are traveling. Because in a hotel room, you know, with blind out shades, as long as you're not hitting the bar, uh, you know, and, and you take a, you know, you have a comfortable pillow, it's, it's actually easy to create that, that, uh, you know, quiet, dark, um, environment. Um, one th uh, there is, this question of whether some people like it to be very quiet, other people want some background noise. And so it's important to know that if, if you have a constant background noise, which is like, like a hum or, you know, sometimes you have this, these noise machines, they actually help you fall asleep. It's abrupt, sudden noises that wake you up. And so that's something to keep in mind because, um, especially if people have, there's some, uh, people who will say that they can their sleep is easily disturbed, then maybe having a noise machine helps because it, it sort of drowns out abrupt noises. Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two is, I, you know, it whenever they're traveling, often players, they may have young families at home, and then they have home and other social obligations that will keep them more up and occupied while they're at home and they may not make it to bed on time. And those, those external, mm, uh, uh, you know, those external, I'm looking, not hind I, I don't want to say hindrances, but uh, uh, they, that would be taken away when you get back to your hotel room. So you don't have as many distractions per se, and that should help you sleep. There is this one thing, and I always like to talk about, especially when people ask me about sleeping at home and not and sleeping away. So there are there is this particular set of people. There are people who have 
who sleep poorly the first night they are in a new environment. And oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, I'm either they're either excited or they think it's it may be because of jet lag if they're traveling or they're just overly uh, tired. But this is a phenomenon called first night effect. And we've known about that for a long time. So there are oftentimes when we do sleep studies in the sleep lab, some patients will come in and they they just sleep poorly. And then when you ask them the next day what happened, and they're like, well, I've always slept really well at home. But anytime I travel, it's the first night I just sleep poorly. So and and that there is actually research to show why that is. So if you've ever heard the phrase sleeping with one eye open. Yeah. So that's the kind that's kind of what happens when during the first night effect. So one hemisphere of the brain remains slightly active. So you know it's not as asleep. So you if so that if you're ever in trouble or in danger then you're sleeping it it's like a it's a fight or flight or self-preservation instinct. And and so so think back when you know if you were ever sleeping in an unfamiliar environment trouble sleep would be almost like a survival instinct so that if there's any unfamiliar or potentially dangerous things in the environment you want to be slightly vigilant just partially more vigilant than normal so that you can keep almost like a night watch right and so and that's what this so this is what um uh people who have uh first night effect is so so during travel uh, i always tell people especially if they're if they're if they're players and they they're you know one of the league players they always go to the same cities if you can keep and always go back to the same hotel and try to sleep in the same room um or um because the brain sort of has this long-term memory for familiar places and then you avoid that first night effect or considering and this is of course very very difficult to do would be either arriving a night early so you have a chance to play catch up um or um you know or doing simple things like don't drink too much caffeine um and you know make sure you spend enough time in outside and make the bedroom comfortable this is a huge topic to to even introduce uh, and i don't really know where to begin fully but you know jet lag is an enormous uh, piece of the puzzle especially in the states because you've got different time zones um mm-hmm. how do you kind of def- i guess to for anyone who's less familiar with uh, the sort the science of jet lag they might be you know familiar with it but maybe not know the ins and outs how do you define jet lag first and and how do you kind of approach it um when you're working with teams that cross time zones so for your audience i think it's best to always begin with some background information it's kind of it's important to know about circadian rhythms and so circadian rhythms are these intrinsic timekeeping uh, clocks that we have in our bodies which um which sort of synchronize all our uh, all our physiological rhythms to a 24 hour cycle so you know for human beings our master circadian clock is located in our brain and it's you know every day it's reset because of its exposure to light and dark of the night and day in whenever whichever local area or local time zone you're at and of course in addition to that master clock we have in our brain andrew we also have local clocks in almost every cell in our body 
which are under local control and they're controlled by the master clock. So your master clock really is functioning like a master conductor. It coordinates the timing and the function of all the clocks and really all the functions in your body. So, so what happens is what you're talking about is what jet lag is. So <clears throat> what happens with athletes or what happens with any of us is that whenever we take a jet and we rapidly cross time zones, so three or more time zones and get to a, a, a new destination, our biologic, our, our circadian rhythms get lagged behind. So they're still synchronized to the time zone, which is back home. Right. So when you get to the night, new time zone, your circadian clock is scrambling to get in sync with the new time zone. And that's why that causes all the symptoms of jet lag, which is, you know, you may have difficulty sleeping at the new local bedtime or you may have difficulty maintaining sleep or you may be sleepy during the day when you're supposed to be awake. Like, for example, if you flew from here to England, you know, you'd be jet lagged and now you'd you'd be expected to sleep six hours earlier than what you regularly have been sleeping because your biological rhythms, Andrew, are synchronized or should be synchronized right now to Pennsylvania time, which is East Coast time here. So uh, that, and so that's the background. So go ahead. You know, idealistically, is the strategy around that trying to, you know, obviously arrive uh, early or late, depending on how you can split the schedule. But idealistically, you're just trying to split the difference between where you were and where you now are or where you're going in terms of what time people go to sleep? So so the goals of jet lag management are twofold. Number one is you want to you want to feel well rested and so you want your sleep cycle to uh, to get synchronized as rapidly as possible to the new time zone so you can sleep well at night and you can be awake and alert during the day when you you know in the new local area and the second goal of course is that that you're that um you know because all the all the other systems of your body all the other physiological functions you know your heart your liver your kidney your everything has a circadian clock you want that to be synchronized too so with that in mind whenever you're approaching somebody with jet lag you want you know there are a series of things you can do while you're at home then there's something you do while you're on a plane and then you know what you do in the destination the first thing you can do while you're at home is and this may be the most important thing is to be well rested so it's really really important to get enough rest get enough sleep before you even get onto that plane, because you know you're going to be sleep deprived, you know you're going to be, you know, you're going to feel a little groggy, and you don't want to start out with a deficit. Now there's there's some, you know, there's some uh, research which shows that you could even get adjusted to the new time zone while you were at home, uh, just by using light therapy and you know shifting your bedtime. So for ex- for example, you could still be in Pennsylvania. And you could try to start sleeping early and waking up earlier and use light ex, you know, exposure and avoidance to get adjusted even before you got there, before you did get to um, uh, the UK. The problem with that is that most people have very busy lives and especially, you know, athletes, they're, they're often playing, they often play a game, get done with the, play, uh, the game and then board a flight to go to the next area. So 
you know, getting enough sleep is the first thing you can do. Then while you're on the plane, you want to, you know, make sure that you get well rested. If you can, you know, sleep, you know, take take with you noise cancelling headphones, use night blind out um, lights, avoid, you know, alcohol, avoid too much caffeine. And then when you get to the new destination zone, you know, make sure that you expose yourself to bright light or you avoid light strategically. And, you know, one simple way to look at it, Andrew, is, is that whenever you expose yourself to bright light at night, you go to bed later and you, so you shift your clock back. And if you, if you ever expose yourself to bright light in the morning, that'll help you go to bed earlier and that'll help you shift your clock earlier. So if you were going from here to London, you'd want bright light exposure, you know, earlier during the day so that you could start going to bed earlier. But you have to be just, you have to be a little careful uh, because remember your clock is still set at Detroit, um, sorry, in on East Coast time. So did I make it too complicated? No, that makes sense. So it's, uh, yeah, that's, you know, so you, when you're, when I'm working with athletes and teams, it really, you, you, it's starting from picking the flight timing, you know, when they should be eating their meals, when they should be training, what the bedtime should be leading up all the way to the, to the flight, you know, and then once they get there, how you can slowly start, you know, put, build that training back to where you want them to be before they start playing. So that's, that's the, the whole goal. The other thing, if I may, I, I know I, I've gone off a little bit on a tangent here. Uh, you know, the other thing to remember also is that, that because, because every physiological function has a circadian rhythm and it peaks and ebbs at a certain time, we now know that things like, you know, your muscle contractile strength, um, your postural balance, you know, joint flex, uh, flexibility, all the things that are important for athletic performance, there's actually a certain time during the day that it tends to peak, and that's usually in the evening. And so when, when athletes travel, that is now out of sync with their new game timings, because ideally you want body peak performance to occur at the time of the game, whenever the game is. And so that's the second goal. That's the third goal. Whenever whenever athletes are, are traveling, that you want you want to help synchronize that also as as rapidly as possible. I've heard, uh, and I'm sure the listeners have as well, quite quite commonly. I've heard before people talking about uh, you need a day uh, to acclimatize to one hour of time shift. Is is that yeah. co- correct, or is there like an alternative, you know, ratio for how you graduate uh, sleep planning? So so typically, whenever you for, so. Number one, traveling west is always easier than traveling east. So because when you're traveling west, you have to go to bed later and wake up later. So delaying your bedtime is always easier. So for every time zone when you're traveling west, it takes about half a day uh, per time zone to get adjusted. And it takes about a day, a full day when you're traveling east. When you're um, So yeah, that's, that's usually the mathematical formula. But, but you know, there's, there's also... Yeah, there there are a bunch of confounding factors. So there's a lot of human variability. So one other thing that your circadian clock will affect is your chronotype, which you know is uh, this genetic predisposition that we have of either being morning people or night owls. And so if you're a morning person, 
you know, you're more likely to have difficulty when you're traveling west. If you're a night owl, traveling east is going to be more difficult. So you have to put in all this, you know, all this information when you're coming up with a plan. So when I, if I work and when I work with a team, you know, I will, I will generally have an overall plan, which is meant for the entire team, including the front office, you know, everybody, and then have um, more uh, personalized plans for like night owls or the morning people so that they could all get, um, they, they could all be on the same page. And I think um, everyone can probably relate to the the consequences of a lack of sleep experientially at, at some stage um, and hopefully not currently. But, um, you know, the aim of the game in sport is obviously to win. And, you know, we know that we, we're trying to boost physical performance and athletic performance and uh, and boost recovery, of course. From a kind of technical and tactical standpoint, um, how much have you or how much has anyone sort of studied the relationship between sleep and, and, and I guess, winning or, you know, and the implications from a, a sleep debt? Well, I, I guess it's it's all a matter of making sure that you have that competitive advantage that we we were just talking about right at the very beginning. So, you know, the bottom line is that that in today's world, the skill and expertise level in competing teams in elite sports it's pretty high. And at this level, athletes and teams, they're all looking to get that competitive edge and optimizing sleep is definitely part of that arsenal. So it's all about removing any element of luck from the competition. You know, I, I always like to tell people that luck and or that element of unpredictability is only relevant when two teams or opposing uh, or opponents are of the same caliber, right? So that's that's when uh, winning the coin toss or who got more sleep or who's more on their game that day will matter, right? I mean, if there if the competition is between major league baseball and you they were playing against minor league a minor league team, luck would be completely irrelevant. It really has to do with with uh, it, luck is only relevant amongst when when both the team both the uh, opposing teams are almost as good as each other. So, you know, not just is there enough data to show that not getting enough sleep, uh, you know, makes you slower, makes you, makes you um, uh, less accurate, you know, increases risk-taking behavior, and, you, you know, you make poorer moment-to-moment -moment decisions in the game. But there's also data that shows that just being out of sync with your circadian rhythms is can also be related to how often you win or lose. So we were talking about that circadian advantage that people have. So typically for most people, between four and seven is when you're, when you have a, uh, when, when you have a circadian advantage when it comes to games. So there's 40 years of NFL data in which, Andrew, they looked at night games in which East Coast was versing the West Coast, and they found that the West Coast beat the East Coast. So they beat the Las Vegas point spread to win twice as often. And that's because they were playing when at their biological advantage. Hmm. So it's, it, it's, it's pretty neat. You know, your coaches are always looking for something that will help to get that winning edge and sleep is definitely it the the pt of it within me obviously has a very vested interest in injuries and 
I'm curious, what's the kind of relationship between sleep and then injury occurrence? I know injury occurrence is a really messy topic because there's lots of things that uh, are contributing factors, but is, is there much data or correlation between the two at least? Yes, yes. So there is, um, so there are, there are studies which were done in, you know, young athletes, adolescents, as well as in older athletes. So, um, so in adolescents, there, there's a study that looks at, you know, they followed, these were elite high school athletes, and they followed them for a period of 22 months, and they looked at multiple variables, and they found that not getting enough, so getting less than seven hours of sleep increased the likelihood of getting injured 1.7 times as compared to other athletes. Uh, 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 other athletes who were getting more than seven hours of sleep. There's another study again done in, uh, you know, again, elite um, adolescent athletes. This was a large study in which they looked at the bio, they applied the biopsychosocial model and they were trying to look at the different the different uh, variables that were going to affect likelihood of getting injured. And they found that that whenever there is an increase in training load or volume, and at the same time, there's a reduction in the number of hours of sleep, there was an increased likelihood of getting injured. So I typically, you know, that would, that's what training camp is, right? Or a preseason typically is when you, when you, there's suddenly an increase in training load, there's decreased amount of sleep. Then there's, I know that there's, there, you know, they, they've shown this in, in endurance athletes in which they found that if they were getting less sleep, they were more likely to get injured. And it, it absolutely makes sense. So if, if you're, again, if your reaction time is low, is increased, if your accuracy is reduced, if your judgment is impaired, if you're making decisions which are overly emotional, if, you're, if your risk-taking behavior is increased, then the likelihood of, that you get injured actually increases. In fact, in fact, last year, uh, Matt, um, Andrew, there was, a, uh, there was a study done in um, 190 NCAA Division I athletes. And again, they followed them and they had them fill out so it was a prospective study. They had them fill out a bunch of paperwork uh, surveys, and they found that getting less sleep or ex excessive daytime sleepiness or poor and inadequate sleep significantly increased the likelihood of getting concussions. So it even increases the likelihood of head injuries. Within the kind of, I don't know if it has, but within the literature that's looked at injury occurrence and the relationship of sleep, have they being able to categorize, say, traumatic versus non-traumatic injuries. You know, for instance, like in a, a sport like American football, injuries that happen with a contact versus non-contact injuries. You know, that's a very good question. And I don't think that, there, that I think we need to do more research in that area. So what broadly what they have found is that if you if you get less sleep, you're more likely to put yourself in situations in which injury is likely to occur. Does that help? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I know. I haven't answered your question, so I, you know, I, I don't. I don't know the specific answer because I don't think there's there's enough data out there that uh, we so that we can stratify the risk and see, you know, what kind of injuries tend to increase more. Yeah, and I guess still within the kind of injury theme. 
when say an injury an, an athlete is injured or perhaps recovering say you know post-op from an orthopedic procedure how much does the sleep need to be changed or, or does it need to be changed obviously that you want optimal sleep always but does the amount of sleep that an athlete needs in that state or or any patient does it need to be greater than their typical life absolutely so, so at the most basic level andrew whenever there is any sort of insult to you know your physical or mental insult so either you've an infection or an injury the way our body tends to recover is during sleep so i'll tell you i mean you know we're, we're of course recording this during the times of the pandemic and uh, for example when it comes to immune health you know infectious disease will tell you that that sleep is is a infection's best friend because the more sleep you get that's where the recovery happens similarly if you ever ever are injured uh, or in the post op phase you need enough sleep because that's where recovery happens and i'll here are the the reasons why number one is of course is growth hormone so gro- growth hormone um gets secreted only during deep sleep and it's really important because it helps stimulate growth it you know it aids in cell reproduction cell regeneration it regulates your body, uh, body metabolism so that it can literally repair you while you're sleeping and of course while you're sleeping your generally your energy consumption is lowered and because so now it's so now your body and your brain both eyes rest and now this energy is now used to restore your bones and your muscles etc the second reason of course is is uh, cortisol so cortisol is a hormone that is related to of course stress levels and so the higher the amount of cortisol present the higher the stress levels and and so you know while you're when you're asleep and if you sleep well it's during that time the amount of cortisol reduces and it naturally re- reduces and as a result your you know more recovery from an injury uh, tends to happen and the third i think is it's important to remember is that testosterone so testosterone is typically secreted in the during the day and more peaks sort of in the in the late afternoon but it's significantly affected by the number of hours of sleep and testosterone you know we need for muscle health recovery and from recovery from uh, you know that sense of vigor and well-being that it it gives um so that's why it's it's important and i guess this can apply to the to an injured athlete or any athlete is there what what's the threshold where you know you want as much sleep as possible but you're not getting so much that you change your circadian rhythm where's the kind of the threshold boundaries i no that's a very good question and so the you know to begin with what i want your your audience to understand is that it's it's actually impossible to consume more sleep than your sleep requirement so if you after an injury or after um, you know surgery or an illness are sleeping longer you it's because that's what your body wants you to do so this becomes very relevant after head injuries in which you know after a head injury happens in the first few days uh, immediately after the head injury there may actually sports head injuries you know so typically sports head injuries are not as severe as like a motor vehicle accident head injury so in those cases sleep 
is, you know, will, the amount and the depth of sleep might increase. And that's because recovery is happening. But what you're pointing out is also something very important. So, you know, you although you you want to allow the player to get enough sleep, you still want to maintain some amount of scheduling. So you want them to you still want them to anchor most of their sleep during nighttime and maybe supplement that with by taking a nap and not sleep the day away because that would would actually worsen problems, right? Because now they'd be sleeping through the day and, you know, to take long naps during the day and then th that would, as a result, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night at all. And and that actually would, you know, that, that would have a compounding effect because that sometimes is the reason uh, or contributes to the depression or, um, you know, other mental health issues that an injured athlete might develop. The fact that they're now no longer interacting with other people because they're, you know, they're asleep during the day and they're awake at night um, when they really should be sleeping. On a on a side note, you mentioned napping there, so it's just kind of triggered this thought for me. But you know, I've been to numerous sports uh, training environments where they have napping pods. Mm -hmm. How, you know, obviously when someone's uh, recovering from major trauma, you can, like you just said, you can justify in, in, in context um, napping. When you've got an athlete who's not recovering from major trauma and they're going about their normal pre-season or their normal training schedule, um, is napping something that is important or should it be in, avoided? I know it's probably context specific, but where do you kind of stand on that? So, so think about what uh, napping does. I'm a, I, I think naps are fantastic because most athletes are not getting enough sleep because of their schedules, you know, because they're busy, they're, they have, you know, their training schedules, their game times, they have social lives, they have, you know, they may not get enough time to get enough sleep at night. And so a great way to supplement that is by taking a nap. Now, I like to divide naps into like, you know, two kinds. Number one is, um, you know, is depending on the length. So if you, you know, a power nap is when you fall asleep and wake up within 15 to 20 minutes. And that itself it is restorative. Um, it can give you good, you know, it gives, gives you good enough energy for the next few hours um, because it takes a bite out of your sleep drive. The second length is maybe a 35 minute nap. You're still waking up from light sleep, but in addition to, you know, stage one, which is very light sleep, you have some amount of stage two sleep. And then, of course, there's a 90 minute, it's like a granddaddy nap in which you have a full, complete sleep cycle. You have light sleep, deep sleep, dream sleep, you wake up. And that's the kind of nap that NBA players or NHL players, they love to take. Um, so that's so the first is the length of the nap. Uh, the You know, when coming talking about the length of the nap, the one kind of nap that I, I would avoid is avoid waking up within 45 minutes to an hour of going to sleep because then you tend to wake up from deep sleep and then you feel groggy. So you have sleep inertia in which you feel kind of tired um, and may, may even feel uh, end up feeling a little worse for a few, um, for, the, for the next, you know, few minutes or maybe even an hour. The second, of course, is the timing of the nap. So you know how we talked about circadian rhythms and how, our alertness can actually change. You wake up in the morning and you become, you stay alert. And then in the mid-afternoon, Andrew, there's a 
there's typically a dip in our normal alertness. So some people would say it's after lunch. I'm a morning uh, person, and for me, that dip occurs between one and three. You know, somebody who's a night owl, it may occur between three and five. That dip in your alertness, that's a good time to take a nap. So I would say when it comes to timing, remember you you take a nap in the mid-afternoon when you're feeling sleepy, and make sure that the nap is not very close to your actual game because you don't want that grogginess or that uh, sleep inertia to carry over. So those are the two things I would point out about naps. But I, you know, naps are a great way to play catch up. They're a great way to prepare, you know, to to get ready for the game. So they're they're, they're always helpful. This is a bit of a off the piste question, but it's still in the context of sleep. It's a random one that just came to mind. I just I used to work with some rowers who who rowed the Atlantic, and they devised a sleep schedule that was two hours of rowing, two hours of rest. Within that rest would, would also be uh, their nutrition and anything else they need to do, but they would get their sleep within a two-hour window of time and they would do that two-and-two two schedule constantly until they basically hit land again. Can can a body under sort of expedition environments like that, can you, you, you mentioned the 24-hour cycle, but can you kind of change that, if you like, and bend it to a very dramatically different schedule if it is consistent? No, not really. So are you saying, so let me understand this correctly. So this team, this rowing team, they would go for 24 hours? Is that what? They would row for two hours. They would cycle in sort of pairs, but they would row for two hours and then they would have a two hour rest from rowing within that. And within that two hour block, they would be allowed to sleep. Okay. And then they would get up and do that again? They would keep doing that over and over and over again, uh, day after day, until they achieved the race and finished it. Okay, and and why were they doing this, Andrew? Uh, they were doing a it's a, a race from uh, Europe across to the Caribbean. It's a transatlantic race that happens every oh. year, but um, they want to just keep the boat in motion, so they kind of divide up the rowing in pairs and try and keep the boat moving. And and they don't want to, so they, they, there is never a period of time in which somebody is getting six hours or seven hours of sleep. Never that long, no. Okay, okay. Well, so so uh, first of all, I hope that they do. So this is something that they're doing for a short period of time, right? It takes them, what, seven days or 10 days? Uh, like a few weeks, month-ish. It depends on the weather, but around a month approximately. Oh. So what they're, what they're basically, it's, 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 you know, it's funny because in the sleep lab and historically, we've done these protocols. They're called, they're desynchronizing protocols in which you in which the sleep and your circadian rhythms typically become uncoupled and that's what's happening in this case and uh, i not to be recommended first of all <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not really so there, there's the, the short answer is there's really is no there's no ac- way that your body or your circadian rhythms are going to get acclimatized to this cycle. And I can give you an example. So for example, when people go into space, when astronauts go into space, I want to say there are about 17 sunrises and sunsets within a 24 hour period. And, you know, so so obviously, there is no way that the human physiology can actually adapt and get synchronized as rapidly to that. And so what they do is so that so so they have to have uh, there an artificial environment created 
in which you know they're exposed to light and dark and and they this is simulated and in such a way so when whenever there's a group of people you know they're they're all out of sync with each other but they're but their own uh but their own uh um, cycle is synchronized. Does that make sense? So they're yeah. all a few hours off from each other so that there's always somebody who's awake because if you're not awake and, and, and they do this because if, you know, in space, if you're awake and you're not alert, then you're dead. I mean, you know, you can get into big trouble. So that's how they, that's how they um, set their circadian rhythms. Um, you know, if it, that would be really interesting, I would love to work with, with, um, you know, to just get some information of how these teams just to get to study how they feel, because I'm sure that that fatigue is, is likely to build up and it can be quite disabling. And, and, you know, um, yeah, I, 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 I definitely think that they should be, they sh their schedules should be studied. I wonder if they're doing that now, you know, with, with some of those wearable devices. There was, I, I don't know if you heard about this, there was a few years ago, there was this big trend um, for people to, you know, sleep in um, these different sleep cycles. They wanted to sleep for four, you know, be awake for four hours and sleep for two hours. I, I, remember, I remember hearing about that around the time. Yeah. Yes, complete, utter rubbish and absolutely not based, like bad for you, bad for your health. Um, no, no, no. So, so, so remember your circadian rhythms, their circadian rhythms really developed as human life evolved and it, they developed in response to the rotation of the earth. And so when the earth is rotating and because revolving and, and rotating and because there's alternating night and darkness, so our body, so our clocks develop these cellular body uh, clocks. Um, so, our, sorry, I said that incorrectly. So our bodies develop these cellular clocks, which anticipate this time. So, the, uh, so they're anticipating it because that helps us become more energy efficient. So one way to think about that, Andrew, is to say, you know, what happens is like, for example, that our body temperature has a circadian rhythm. So it kind of sort of peaks between four and seven, then it starts to ebb. And then while the body temperature is falling, you are ready to go to sleep. And then it, there's a minimum between, you know, between say two and four in the morning. So for somebody who goes to bed at, and, and then it's, then before you even wake up, the body temperature in anticipation of the fact that you're going to wake up is going to start increasing because it's preparing your body to awake. Because whenever you anticipate a biological function, you, you, know, you become more efficient. You, you utilize energy more efficiently. So your, your adrenaline, your cortisol levels start to rise in anticipation to the fact that this is a time where you typically wake up and then you get exposed to bright light and that light helps reset your circadian rhythm on a regular basis. And, and the, so the circadian rhythm has a, has a, this clock is set for about 24 hours plus, you know, a few minutes, like 24 plus one or plus 24.3. And that 24 rhythm can never, never get acclimatized to the two on two, two uh, off um, cycle that you're describing. So what's going to happen is that not just are your circadian rhythms now completely out of sync, but 
but you you know so you're you're never getting consolidated sleep and uh, you know after the first say we uh, you know uh, i don't know a few hours it all depends individually after the first few hours you're constantly under sleep debt which you know when you fall asleep you kind of make up for it and then you wake up and then you build that debt debt again and then you you know then you go back to sleep uh, now of course when you're very sleep deprived again i'm i'm going off on a tangent so you know feel free to interrupt me no i welcome but it when you when you are sleep deprived like that what happens is that that your sleep becomes more efficient so you immediately have more deep sleep so because your body realizes oh, who knows when this guy's going to go sleep again so i might as well immediately you know have get more deep sleep in so i can do some of the restorative function that i'm supposed to which is what the sleep what your um, you know what the function of sleep is and and you know one thing we know now is that the deep cleansing of your brain happens only while you're sleeping so it's you know when and i'm sure you've heard about this that it's you know it's while you're asleep it's like blood rushes through your brain and it power washes all the toxins that have accumulated um while you've been awake and so that it, your body gets rid of that and so uh, i'd be very interested to do some some research on those on uh, you know on those rovers to see what's happening to them no i think it'd be, that'd be an interesting conversation um one of the things i was wondering actually is um from a sports medicine point of view whether you're a strength coach a sports scientist or a pt you're you know working with athletes or whatever you do with athletes in a team you're you're predominantly a knowledge worker that's the kind of the bread and butter of what you do and obviously the staff are a part of the entourage this these members of staff are part of the entourage that travels with athletes um and to some degree suffers the same lack of downtime and sleep jet lag mm -hmm. all the other problems we've discussed they're going through that same thing as the athletes obviously they don't have to um physically perform in the same way the athletes do but they've they've got to cognitively uh, make sound judgments and uh, make key decisions how involved do you get with kind of sporting organizations staff obviously you'll help the athletes but do you help the staff members as well in a similar way absolutely i mean i absolutely agree with you i would say coaches and athletic staff uh, you know training it's like trainers uh, strength and conditioning coaches physical therapists they are actually sometimes worse off because they get to the you know they get there before the athletes do they often leave after so so they definitely you know are more sleep deprived and they may actually have more um stresses on them uh, especially in america you know some of the, uh, their the, the the stability of their jobs often depends on how the athletes are doing and you know they can they can often be fired and hired so that that is an additional stress for them but i you know i i like um i just want to take up that segue about talking about knowledge work because of course we know that that coaches do a lot of knowledge work and knowledge work really suffers if you're sleep deprived and i'll i'll, I'll tell you i i like to divide that up into three parts so the first is you know think think about um any any problem solving abilities strategizing coming up with plays or solutions sleep plays a very significant role here so you know taking in new information 
putting in putting it together with previously stored information, coming up with novel ideas. That is all that happens while you're sleeping. I mean, Andrew, that's why we say sleep on a problem. We you you, you don't eat on a problem. You know that you come up with you know ide- newer ideas and uh, when you're sleeping. So that's number one. The second thing is emotional regulation. Sleep is so important for that. So think about all the steps in emotional regulation. You know, you look at a situation, you decide whether you're going to pay attention to it, you appraise it, you decide how you want to address it, whether you want to say something, respond or not. All those steps will degrade if you don't get enough sleep. And in fact, you know, not getting enough sleep increases, like we said, risk-taking in um, abilities, but one of the major things that coaches have to do is they have to communicate. I mean, they have to talk to assistant coaches and you know other coaches. They have to communicate with players. They have to communicate. Physical therapists have to communicate with each other and with the players. And your communication skills really go down if you don't get enough sleep. And of course, you know, whenever when I first started working in this, I would talk to to athletes about. How the long-term health detrimental effects on health that that you would get if you don't get enough sleep, and I realized very quickly that athletes really don't care because they really want they are focused on playing better the next day. But uh, but coaches and athletic trainers who are they're typically older, and so they have to be aware of the fact that. If you don't get enough sleep, your health typically tends to to um, degrade. So you know, talk about all the ways that you no- normally people will age and die. So atherosclerosis, which is you know any sort of heart disease or stroke or neurodegenerative uh, processes, which is you know dementias or neoplastic, which is cancer. Every each and every one of these is affected by poor sleep. So poor sleep will con- directly contribute to all of these. All the, so it's very very important uh, to for for all the other staff there. And my approach is so so in a roundabout way. I'm going to answer your question now. So my approach is really by education. Again, you know, it's it's important to talk about this. When you give that educational talk, you want to have the entire team there, including the front office, including the coaches, because, you know, I can tell the athletes what to do, but the coaches often decide what their schedule is going to be, right? The front office often has to participate because they often have to pay the bill. They have to pay the bill if you decide to spend an extra night somewhere. So it's it's really important that that every member of the team be involved. You can be sensitive to organizations that you've worked with or not, but um, have you kind of seen any organizations in sport implementing strategies around their staff being able to sleep more or, you know, rotating staff maybe in terms of travel? Or have you been seeing teams consider this for their medical and performance departments? Yes, absolutely. So I would say that in the last 10 years is one of the major changes and that's ha- that's happening. It's because there's more awareness of sleep. And now, you know, the changes could be in multiple ways. They, you know, the fact that organizations want to bring experts like me in to talk to their uh, players or talk to their staff, that itself is a step, you know, in the right direction because they want to know about 
sleep. They, you know, I, as you've heard, a lot of uh, a lot of professional sports teams now have, you know, napping rooms. Um, I know uh, they have they have separate rooms for even the coaching staff, so that if they want to sleep there. Um, you know, they 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 decide that they want to send a few players if they know that the players are not going to be playing in the first. You know, they may decide to send them like in in Major League Baseball, they might decide to send the starting player home um, or to the new ne- next destination so that they're there already and they're ready. So teams are are doing quite a few things, and uh, and really it it's you know it boils down to. Uh, to just play in education because it's now once it's on their radar, it's easier for them to follow. Oftentimes it's not even on their radar. And I guess it's hard because there is also an element of in some organizations, there's this huge teamwork factor, isn't there? Where, you know, sometimes the management will want everybody to be under the kind of same conditions. So, you know, if the players are going through the travel, then, and one member of staff is, then everyone's there. And I guess I can understand that from a cultural standpoint, but I guess from a, yeah. you know a health standpoint, they're quite conflicting um, intents. Right, right. But also, also, you know, the one thing that happens in broadly over teams is that with you know with education, oftentimes the the uh, changes in their schedules can be quite subtle, and oftentimes those changes can be, you know, the leaders in the team. So not just even the head coaches, if they decide that during, you know, after lunch, if they wanted to take a twenty-minute nap, the fact that the the coach, head coach, can do that, and you know, because they want to be super productive that too filters down and so it's it's really it really is cultural change because the message you want to bring you bring, want to bring across is that you want to work harder by being by working smarter and not working longer and 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 that's that's the the kind of that's the kind of information you want them to have uh, of course, there's always pushback, Andrew. You know, people, you know, obviously have been doing things the same way for many, many years, and and um, you know, trying to change culture is is something that happens very slowly. Yeah, and probably something every organisation can relate to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, you've been incredibly kind, fielding hundreds of questions of mine. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about or any kind of closing thoughts that you you would like the opportunity to say um that you haven't had the chance to yet you know i i want to talk just one thing i want to uh mention is because i i i don't want uh players or your members or audience members to come away thinking that they that players or professional teams are are on purpose not getting enough sleep you know so it's very important to understand that that life in general for professional uh, athletes or professional team or you know even sports and student athletes is difficult. You know they may have travel, they have training either in the early morning schedules, high intensity periods of training, 
or they may have poor sleep because of pre-competition and late night schedulings or worry and anxiety about athletic performance and difficulty sleeping after the game itself. And all of those actually make it more difficult for athletes to sleep well. Now, of course, there are a group of athletes who've, who can sleep pretty well, but typically this is something that the athletes have to learn how to deal with. You know, it's it's something that they they have to be they have to uh, they have to be taught, and something that they they come to after uh, you know after they've gone through some periods of, of of error and you know trial and error. And so it's that's important to keep in mind. That's why you want to give them this information so that they know what the right how what the right way is and how they can maximize their sleep. And I guess that circulates uh, back really well to your your initial point about the value of sleep diaries and creating a more uh, educated and aware uh, person about their sleep. Right, right. It's you know, it's you, I, you, you want to give them information. You want that. You want the first of all, you want those conversations with teams and and athletes to be clear. You want them to be candid. You want to understand where they're coming from. You want, and when you want, when you come up with solutions, you want those solutions to be very simple, right? You want them to be simple and easy to follow. And you want, so that oftentimes some, for some athletes, they don't want to spend extra time thinking about this. And so, you know, you, maybe you want to provide them, like, for example, I, like to provide them with behavioral cues. I'll set up schedules for them so that they don't they, so they have to, they don't have to do the thinking part, and then they can just do the the actual um, falling asleep part. And I think again, I, I I can't emphasize enough how important it is to educate them because oftentimes you know people will ask me to come speak to a team, and they'll say, well, can you like can you set up a can you you know do a paper, um, a pamphlet, and talk about all the great things sleepers are like, yes, but I can promise you players are not going to pay attention to it because there are so many things that are competing for a player's attention. So you want you want to give them int- uh, information that's interesting and simple to follow, and yet, you know, you want to be able to, you know, inspire them to make sure that they follow um, on, and, and make time for their own rest and recovery. Thank you very much for that. That was uh, an unbelievably uh, fascinating in, uh, episode. I think everybody can relate to it, but uh, definitely one of the most interesting conversations I've I've had. So, you know, I really thank you for your your generosity coming on and sharing an absolute wealth of information and experience with us there. Thank you so. Thank you for having me. Thank you for giving me a platform. Andrew. No, it was, a, it was a pleasure. And where's the best place for our listeners to follow you or see what you're up to professionally? Well, so I do have a website. It's uh, metasingmd.com. Maybe you could you could add a link to it. Um, I'm I'm also on LinkedIn, uh, Mita Singh MD. I'm on Twitter. It's athlete sleep MD one. And I just recently started Instagram because just because of the the pandemic. Because you know, athletes, they're, they're, people are asking me to make videos and post them. So it's and on Instagram, it's I'm athlete sleep MD, and I'm you know if you if you send me a question, I'm I'm always happy to answer. I I do that quite often. Um, yeah, cool. that's 
basically it. We'll we'll link everything that you've just shared with us, uh, so people can find you easily. And and again, I just I just want to take the opportunity to say to say thank you very much again, and thanks for providing such an educational episode for us. You're very welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Mita Singh for not only fielding hundreds of my questions, but especially for the generosity of her time. I'm sure I'm not alone that I can't speak highly enough of her ability to funnel her world-class expertise and wealth of knowledge on sleep science and communicate it into a language that's interesting, easy to digest and essentially helpful for our community, regardless of which discipline you are. The next episode to be released is definitely one not to miss. I host a tendon panel discussion between Karen Silbernackle, Mark Young and Matt Tuttle on how to manage an Achilles tendinopathy in elite sport, which provided some very interesting ideas, insights and information. So hit subscribe and follow us on social media to ensure that you don't miss that episode or any other future episodes. Our Instagram handle is informperformance and our Twitter handle is informpod. Thanks for listening to the Informed Performance Podcast.